Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I met my next guest in July of this year. I heard her speak about Search and Reunion and was absolutely certain that you would benefit from hearing from her too. When I learned that she read Twice Born by Betty Jean Lifton when her adopted daughters were little, I knew she was an adoptee ally and someone I wanted to know. Her name is Patricia Martinez Dorner, and her involvement in the adoption community started in 1981. She is a pioneer in open adoption and post-adoption services. Her adoption-focused practice includes counseling, mediation, education, support, and training to individuals and professionals. She is a frequent conference speaker and author of many adoption-related books. Patricia is an adoptive parent who has devoted her private and public life to helping adoptees. She will share with you the importance of preparation in search and reunion because of the complexities involved with adoption. I was unexpectedly moved in this episode by the valuable information she shared for anyone who searches and finds a grave, as in my story. Patricia has a style of communication that allowed me to catch on rather quickly to those things worth considering when an adoptee is taking the steps to find their family of origin and how to proceed at the beginning of reunion. Allow me to introduce you to Patricia, a relentless proponent of adoption reform and a believer in the openness of adoption practices. She holds a master's degree as a licensed professional counselor. Hi, Patricia. I'm so glad you're taking this time to have a conversation with me. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jennifer. Thank you. Yes, I am so excited for the listeners to be able to hear from you. You have so much to say. As a member of the adoption community for many, many years, I want people to really learn about search and reunion, the basic things. But let's first start off with a part of your story. My involvement with adoption began back in 1978 when my husband and I approached agencies in an effort to adopt. And I had no knowledge about adoption at all, except that I wanted to be a parent. And it was only through great fortune that we approached an agency that became a leader in the practice of adoption through advocacy and a change in practice. And so in those early days, we were first put through some educational processes where what was known about adoption in those days was taught to us. And as time passed, each time a new book would come out, we were encouraged to read it. Plus, there were a lot of supports 
over time for families who had adopted. And so there was a lot of consideration of the issues as we knew them then and the efforts that were being made to modify adoption practice in order to serve all parties better. It wasn't just the transaction of putting children in adoptive parents' arms and eliminating the original parents and also ignoring the needs of the children. So through that involvement, I began to learn and begin, began really to advocate for change. Eventually, the agency asked me to take on a program that was being begun, which related to post-adoption services. The idea was to provide services in the community to build an understanding about adoption and also to provide support to adoptive parents. That really was the original focus. But in no time flat, I got involved in the search process because people who became aware of the program began to surface with regard to needs to know more about themselves through the search. And of course, at the beginning, I had no idea what to do or how to do it. So it was the people from within the adoption search movement that became my mentors and guided me. In particular, in the early days, it was Pat Palmer out of Dallas and Peggy Dorn out of Houston. And eventually I connected with Pam Hazagawa in the New Jersey area. And so these people became incredibly helpful in my development and in my understanding about adoption issues. And so that would have been the early chapters of my involvement. I see. And you were in Texas, correct? Yes, that is correct. Now, as the search awareness began to evolve, we also at this agency were looking at ways to modify adoption practice. And it kind of began not only with the books that we were reading, but also the clamor from a birth mother whose child had been adopted, who wanted to know why she could not hear more about her son who had been adopted. And in that manner began the practice of letters that would be exchanged, originally a one-time exchange between the adoptive parents and the birth parents of their child, and vice versa, the birth parents sending a letter that could be shared 20 years later or whatever with the children and possibly a gift, that kind of thing. But as time went by and we kept interweaving our learning, the practice moved towards fully disclosed open adoption, as well as a search and reunion focus, which is what I offered through the program that I was with, but I was also involved in the advocacy and the change in open adoption. So they walked along kind of together in the evolution. And one of the things that I really like to underline is that at no time was this done to seduce the people that were considering adoption for their unborn or born children. It was really an effort to genuinely modify practice in order to benefit all the parties. Mm. Now, I know a little bit about your story as an adoptive parent. When your girls were little is when you started 
reading and learning so much. And I know a book came up, Betty Jean Lifton's uh, Twice Born. Yep. Yeah. Twice Born and Lost and Found, both those books, they were hugely impacting for me. And as I read what Betty Jean shared, I became determined that my children would not go through that. And because at that time, my older daughter, who's now 42, at that time, we had very abbreviated contact with her birth mother. It was at that time that all we had was a letter exchange where I had sent her a letter about how my daughter was doing upon arriving in our family. And she had written a letter to us and to her and sent a gift for our daughter. So I began advocating for getting pictures, for example, and having more ongoing contact. And so it was very unsettling for me to read Betty Jean's material and then subsequently other books. Now, the agency that we worked through and that I eventually worked for had taught us a lot of what was being known and learned at that time. But it was when I began to act as a volunteer for the agency and then eventually work for the agency that all of this came to life. I became a very strong advocate, not only for open adoption, but also for the opening of adoptions where growing children and their families could be in touch with original family. And then of course, after that, the search and reunion or hand in hand with that, not really after that, hand in hand with that, the search and reunion process. So my advocacy was part of my journey whereby I learned more and more through the entrustment of all the people that were living adoption. Yeah, you have so much good information about search and reunion. And I remember when I heard you say that it has healing potential, and that just stuck with me. I really want to talk about that. There are, I think, four things that you mentioned as it relates to search and reunion. I know one is to prepare. Can we talk about that? Sure. My advocacy has always been that the more we prepare for something of such a mammoth proportion, it's important to be as informed as possible. And fortunately, there have been a lot of books out there that talk about the issues that arise through search and reunion. And of course, with the online availability now, there's tons of information. In working with people who came to me, I always built in preparation and support because often people approach search and reunion with the notion that they would find their relatives, whether they were coming from the families by adoption or the families by birth, and that all would be well. And I felt that it was really important for whichever party I was representing or working with for them to really become aware of the issues within their own role and journey, as well as the issues for the other parties, because we understand each other better when we know the kinds of topics that we are dealing with. So for example, I would build in at least an hour of preparation, but throughout our contact, there would be the ongoing exploration of what was going on, how it was feeling, projecting into the future of what might arise. 
because this is a highly complex journey. I sometimes compare it for those who are in relationships of, let's say, marriage or committed relationships, that every relationship has many, many chapters. And whether it's marriage or not, whether it's just familial kinds of interactions with one another or friendship interactions with one another, they all have chapters. And these chapters are not always just glossy experiences. Sometimes we have challenges and we have to manage communication and boundaries and issues as they arise, trying to understand what it is that it is for that other person and for ourselves. So the preparation really is important. And the more that we understand our own topics as well as the topics of others, the better we can navigate these relationships. They're complicated, they're hugely complicated. And what I would always tell the people that I worked with or the people that I taught is that there's no way to predict where any relationship will be. I recently, this is kind of cool because I've been doing this forever. <laughs> I recently was doing some sorting of paperwork and came across the address of a birth mother that I had had contact with probably 25 years ago. And for many years, she wrote me and kept me posted on the relationship with her daughter. And then I moved and we lost contact with one another. So I came across her address and I thought, I'm going to try to call her and see how things are going with her and her daughter, because I remembered their dynamics from years ago and they had started off really well and then they had had some conflict and they were working on their relationships and I only stayed involved with people as long as they needed me in a true therapeutic kind of way I'm very respectful of boundaries and feel that people can find their way on their own unless they seek out my help and I can be available so anyway I I spent a fair amount of time looking for her current information and finally found a number for her daughter, the daughter she had raised, not the daughter that had been adopted. And through all of that was able to find this birth mother many years later and was really pleased to hear that as the years had passed, she and the daughter that I had connected her with had really grown a very enduring and wonderful relationship. Mm. So where they left off with me years ago, was not the final picture. Mm -hmm. They were able to keep growing their relationship and getting to know each other in a very loving and tender way. And to this day had a very wonderful relationship. So it was great. I loved hearing that. Sure. And so that's kind of the journey. It's It's been for me always an entrustment. And again, in preparing people, I try to raise as many of the core issues, letting them know that in the time that we are together, there is no way we can raise every possible scenario. That's impossible in life. But the more that we really work on communication and boundaries, the more we're able to grow these relationships as healthily as possible. Right. Yeah. I so believe in that preparation. And I know I did a lot of reading prior to searching and I remember coming across quite a bit of information that it's possible that you may find that your birth mother is deceased. And I remember, yeah, yeah I remember reading that in several different places. And so when I would search and find my maternal side, my birth mother was in fact deceased. And I remember thinking it wasn't like a shock to my system. I was, of course disappointed. Uh, but yes. I, I just remember thinking, I'm glad I had read that. You know, I'm glad that I had 
covered that in preparation. So I totally agree how important preparation is. And then you talk about pacing. Let's get into that. (laughs) I wanted to touch on the gut-wrenching discovery that a desired birth parent is deceased or that the adopted person is deceased. It's really very gut-wrenching. And when it comes from the adopted person's side, for example, that you discovered, and I'm so sorry about your loss, that your birth mother was deceased, so often it's additionally very difficult and painful for the original family when you walk in, because a lot of times the adopted person is the one who is most like that birth parent. Mm. And I have found that the genes play an unbelievable part. And when you are growing up away from your first family, you have no idea what the genetic messages are. And we all tend to try to be our own person and sometimes and often unconsciously try to be different from the parents we are with and therefore create our unique whatever to be different from our parents until we can't help but be like they are. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, a lot of times what I have discovered is that when there has been a deceased birth parents, that the family... The original family is impacted greatly by the appearance of the person who was adopted because it's like having that deceased person walk in the room. Mm. And there's a lot of mourning that happens not only by the adopted person who discovers the loss of that birth parent, but also the loss reinvigorated by the original family. So it's hugely complicated, plus the fact that so many adopted people are surprised by the depth of the grief that they feel when they discover that that birth parent is deceased, even when they're prepared. So this is all important, complicated stuff that the more that we become aware of how normal it is to have these feelings, that it's a good thing to be aware and prepared to whatever degree anybody can be prepared for such hard stuff. I'm so glad you shared that because I really didn't think about the impact of my arrival on the family uh, since my mother, birth mother, was deceased. And I remember my brother saying to me, it was like a part of our mother came back with me being there. So I just really appreciate you sharing that. It's hugely complicated. And additionally, a lot of adopted people are taken off balance when they begin to experience the depth of the grief Mm. that journey through. And so many of them will express a surprise within themselves that the grief is so profound and the need to go to the place of burial if that person has been buried. And it just goes on and on in terms of the depth and the duration that it doesn't quite go away. It continues as a loss, the loss of opportunity to know each other and also of building and, and getting answers to the millions of questions that everybody lives with. A lot of the work that I do is creating normalcy, validating people's experience, expanding their horizons of N equals one to know that this journey has some common ground with lots of other people. And that can be incredibly validating. So Mm. there we are. Yeah, that was really good, Patricia. I, 
Yeah, because that was one of the first things I did is, well, well, where is her, her body buried? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and immediately wanted to go to the cemetery and and all that followed mm-hmm. after that. That um, is something I think I am still unpacking, obviously, because I can tell how it's affecting me in this conversation. Yes, understandably, totally understandably. These are the checkpoints, Jennifer. I, I call them the checkpoints mm-hmm. of how we are doing. How are we feeling? How enduring is that feeling of grief, sadness? And do we need external help? Or is it something that allows us to move forward just by taking the time to feel it and think about it and talk about it? Right. And there are a multitude of checkpoints in the adoption journey for all parties regarding these various topics that we share because there are the core issues that we share with different expression. Mm-hmm. And so I know there are listeners that um, didn't find graves and they're uh, navigating those relationship stages. Mm-hmm. And so... What do you have to share about that? Well, the the relationships tend to start off with great excitement where people are overjoyed to be in touch with one another, typically if there's receptivity by both parties. And the way that I like to describe it is that eventually everyone has pimples and we start discovering more about each other if we're genuine with each other, which is what I advocate for. And as we discover those attributes that might be different from what we are familiar with or happy with, that we have to make decisions about where our relationship may go if everything is not just exactly the way we anticipated. So the, the early stages are, tend to be incredibly emotional and frequently people will want to be in touch around the clock. So this is where communication and boundaries really come in, especially the early stages, because the in, early stages are interwoven with the fear that this is not going to last, that there's a hazard potential for losing contact with one another again, for whatever reason. She's not gonna like me, he's not gonna like me, we're too different, we live too far away, whatever the heck it is that each person has trepidation about. And so often there's also a a desperate need to just spend time with each other endlessly. So it's really important to take the time to spend the time that's available to the two parties but also to be able to say, I need to go cook dinner, or I've got to go to work, or I've got to talk to my children, so that people are not getting stressed out because they're being stretched beyond what is comfortable at that time. And of course, at the early stages, because people don't know each other that well, they tend to be quite polite and, and careful with each other. So Communication, honest communication is really critically important and already laying down the groundwork for appropriate boundaries is really important. Now, here's the other thing that happens as time, of course, it sets off a huge amount of grief also. A lot of times adopted people are shocked by the amount of grief that birth parents feel and exhibit. 
And that can be quite overwhelming because so often adopted people have the trepidation about approaching birth parents for fear that birth parents don't want to know them. And it's important for adopted people to understand what it's about for birth parents when they're not available to contact. A lot of times is that they're surrounded by both grief and guilt Mm. and shame and opening the door to all these feelings can feel incredibly overwhelming and they're not willing to do that. The other, of course, is that they know what it's like to lose a child and therefore they're not willing to risk losing those in their life at this time, like a spouse, a relationship, their children. And so when I would work with people, I would, and I made contact, for example, with a birth parent that had that kind of feeling, I would say, we don't have to tell anybody. We can walk along and build whatever is possible, whether it's through correspondence or three-way phone calls or emails, until the healing that happens within you, where you no longer feel vulnerable to the judgment of others. And I always found that worked really well. Now, for birth parents reaching out to their children, there were those adopted persons that were not receptive to contact because they were angry about their adoptions or because they were protecting their adoptive parents. And so again, my advocacy would be take the time. You don't have to tell anybody. Let's explore and see where this goes. And all of this has to do with pacing, where we take it very gently. In working with people, I never told them to have contact and then meet the day after or fly to each other's location. That was that tended to be too much, too intense. And very often it made for silence after a period of time of contact. Too much to process, too emotional. So my encouragement for pacing has been get to know each other on the phone, do emails, exchange pictures. Pictures are incredible incredibly profound moments. And it's important for people to know that pictures that include the birth family and don't have the picture of the adopted person in there, it's very painful, important for birth parents to know that. Important Mm. for adopted persons to be prepared for that, that it's very existential to look at these pictures as wonderful as they are and recognize that I'm not as the adopted person in that picture. Mm -hmm. So lots lots of missed opportunities and experiences and inclusions that are incredibly difficult. So there are so many pieces to this, and the pacing helps with absorbing these different realities and feelings and thoughts that arise as contact evolves. Even the whole nature of vocabulary, what kind of vocabulary do we use for each other? Let's give each other time to see what feels comfortable. And that happens over time. It doesn't happen in the first few weeks, but sometimes adopted people want to use a first name for the birth parent. Sometimes they wanna use a mom name or a dad name, or a brother-sister name. Birth parents often don't feel entitled to claim their children as their children. So again, the, the validation that I would provide is this will always be your child, and you have a right to claim that person as your child, even though you had a different role in your child's life. 
So there's tons and tons of different kinds of very profound issues that arise at every step of these contacts. And pacing has a huge part to play in all of this. The awareness that each one of these considerations becomes another piece to that puzzle of where these relationships may go. Right, yes. And I have heard adoptees say that they wanted to call their birth mother by her first name and she wanted them to call her mom. And so those are things you have to figure out. That's right. That's right. And this is where the preparation comes in. I explore the use of titles with the adopted person and I use the I explore the use of titles with the birth parents. And again, it's all about giving each person the time, the needed time to do whatever feels real. It's about being genuine with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like when you say uh, there's joy first, but then the pimples come. <laughs> yeah, yes. the pimples yes. come. Well, I, I want to move on to what you have to say about room for everybody. Well, that's the reality <laughs> of our society, isn't it? As As you examine the different types of families in our society, we have a huge number of blended families. And adoption creates a blended family. It's just that it's not well understood in our society. Mm-hmm. So the reality is that not everyone is ready to include the blending of the families through adoption. Mm-hmm. It breaks my heart when that happens. I'll give you a brief anecdote. I worked with a wonderful birth mother who asked me to find her daughter, which I did. The adopted young woman's parents were very opposed to her having contact with her birth mother. She was a grown-up. She was an adult. She wasn't a child. But because of those loyalty struggles that so many adopted people have, she was very afraid to really fully enter into contact with her birth mother. Anyway, time passed and they did stay in intermittent and then more regular contact. And at some point in time, and actually I stayed in more contact with the birth mother than I did with the adopted young woman. As time passed, the birth mother told me that the daughter told her adoptive mother eventually that she had been in ongoing contact with her birth mother. And the adoptive mother said, I knew you had been because you changed so much. And it was a change for the better. It was a change for the better because what happens when people have answers to their questions and to their anguish is that they get a clearer sense of self. It's a real existential shift in terms of who am I, the critical, one of the critical questions in the journey of adoption, and they become more grounded. And when you're more grounded, you become strengthened. That's what the healing process has to do with, not the exclusive element, but a huge element. And so instead of feeling like one is an alien from another planet, there is a grounding that creates a dramatic change. So I prepare people for those changes because one of the tragedies of these losses is that permanency is questioned. 
will any relationship in my life be permanent? Mm. And therefore, there's a lot of distrust of permanency, which interferes with intimacy. It makes it hard for us to be close. And this affects both parties, really. It affects the the adopted person and the birth parents. There's all kinds of issues about permanency. And so with coming together and experiencing healing, there tends to be a greater openness, a greater trust in relationship, a greater availability to intimacy. I've had many years ago, again, my many years ago stories, I had a, the wife of an adopted man who wrote me a letter saying, thank you for giving our husband and my children's father to us. Mm. He has become so much more available to us because there's a certain absence of people when they're spending a lot of energy, hoping, seeking, wanting contact with those who are absent through adoption. So it goes in a thousand different directions, Jennifer. What can I tell you? It goes on and on and on. And and these are very core issues in adoption. For me, one of the greatest hope breaks is to observe birth parents who tell me that they do not feel entitled or worthy of their subsequent or previous children because they made adoption decisions on behalf of a child. And that is a horrible intergenerational damage to families when those birth parents are grieving the missing child and aren't available to their children, or they go the other direction of being overprotective because they're so scared they're going to lose them. Right. So there's, there's huge intergenerational impact. That's, that's basically the bottom line, as well as the reality that for many adopted people, bonding to their children, truly attaching to the children born to them can be very difficult. And that's another whole tragedy in the adoption journey that is very, very troubling Mm -hmm. when that happens, when that happens. So we really have to work on attachment issues and intimacy issues and loss issues, grief issues, identity issues. It just goes on in so many different directions. Here's something else that I learned as I went along in this experience, and that is when people do reconnect, that there is something I called developmental recycling where people find that they have the needs from the early stages of their life and adoption. So for example, for the adopted person, it can be going all the way to infancy and maybe even pre-birth experiences and needs. And then recycling through the ages and stages each time healing potentially those ages and stages. And with birth parents, going back to the time of the adoption, a tremendous amount of flashback when contact is established and lots of memories of that time period. And they will have very often mutual needs where they need to stare, touch, be in close contact, even do rocking, just all kinds of things that people have to be prepared for. And then that interweaves us with the reality that that kind of intimacy without a shared history can have sexual expressions. And so then we talk about genetic sexual attraction, which has to do with needs very often that were not met years ago. And again, the need for communication and boundaries. And so where people actually have sexual desires for one another and can step over the line with incest. So again, my encouragement is 
call each other by the title that you have because that may diminish the the risk of incest if you allude to your child as your child and you allude to your mother as your mother then hopefully you diminish the possibility probability of stepping over the line and this can happen with siblings also and of course if people are not heterosexual it can happen with people of the same sex and all that awareness is really important yes wow Whew. That you, you're really sharing some gems here. And I just am so thrilled that you took the time to have this conversation with me. And so in closing, what would you say specifically to adoptive parents? My adoptive mom did not want me to search. And it would be eight years after her death that I would actually say enough already. I'm going to search. You know, it was so in me to not do that. And so what would you say to adoptive parents that are so protective maybe or look at reunion, search and reunion as something doesn't feel good to them? Well, we have to help adoptive parents know that so often it's their issues that get in the way. For those who have been infertile, it's again the entitlement to truly be the parents of their children. And I try to present to adoptive parents the fact that as parents, we try to do the best we can for the expressed needs or even unexpressed but known needs of our children. And therefore, if they, in whatever form they do, give permission, if you will, and I use that vocabulary in the sense of making messages to their children that let their children know that it's okay for them to go seek out their answers and their first families, that in fact their children will connect to them more clearly because the reality is that adopted people have a hard time with attachment. And very often the attachment that they have with their adoptive parents is not as close as it could potentially be Mm. if they didn't have all these issues that got in the way. And so what I have found is that once these issues are addressed and connections are made with original family, that the whole relationship with adoptive parents becomes redefined, even if they're dead, becomes redefined. And there is a claiming that often happens in a new and different and often improved way. And so a lot of times we have to teach them about these issues and help them consider those possibilities. For adopted persons who are afraid to reach out to their birth parents, The way that I have framed it with whomever I assist or participate in their lives is to say, consider this an invitation, that you are extending an invitation for that other person and that other family, your first family, to know you. And if they're not able to participate, then we have to deal with boundaries and see what else we can do. But most of all, let's present it as an invitation because each person is worth knowing and you never know when you're offering the healing opportunity to that other person as well. Most typically, it's a mutual healing opportunity and a strengthening intergenerationally for all these parties. Thank you, Patricia. This has been such an honor and privilege. Well, thank you. I hope it's helpful to your listeners. 
I'm not doing searching anymore, Jennifer, because I was going to retire last year. Mm -hmm. But then with COVID, I've been pretty much stationary. So, <laughs> so I decided, well, I like what I do because my idea was to do a lot of traveling with my husband. But with COVID, obviously, we're not traveling. But I've turned over all my searching to somebody that I trusted and all my contracts and everything else. But I am still available for consultation, for counseling, support, preparation. It's very much focused on adoption and foster care. And so I'm available for that if anybody needs that. And most often, I'm not doing long-term therapy. I do whatever, like for example, there's a family I've been working with since their son was about seven and he's now in his early 20s and they just call me when they need me so i do an hour with them here or two hours with them there and that's great that's how i work with people as well if you want to include that i'm available if people need some support some preparation uh, mediation i do that as well i do all kinds of things okay but it's the kind of thing i've been working long distance with people throughout my entire practice. Mm -hmm. So for me, all this distance stuff is totally what I've been doing since 1981. It's mm. just so well, I will be sure and include uh, the, in the show notes how you're available even still sure. now. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that's fine. I can be contacted through my, my email or through you or whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay, and uh, because I took down I took down my web page, Jennifer, okay. because I was retiring. So right, I'll be sure and let the listeners know about your books. Oh, thank you, thank yes, you very much. absolutely, and thank you again. Well, I wish you well in your endeavors. Hours after my conversation with Patricia, I found myself still unpacking what my reunion likely stirred up for members of both sides of my birth family as it relates to grief. I had not considered the impact on them when seeing me for the first time because of genetic mirroring. There always seems to be so much to learn about this subject of adoption. Search and reunion is one of my favorite topics in adoption land because of its healing potential. Patricia has been in the trenches for decades and knows firsthand the many different possible outcomes experienced by families in reunion. In the show notes, you will find a list of books she has authored and how she can be reached for assistance. I like when Patricia mentions how reunion in the beginning can go from joy to pimples as family members with no history get to know one another. She covered so much here that I believe this episode is worth sharing if you know someone embarking on search and reunion. I particularly like knowing that as an adoptive parent, she knows that other adoptive parents can learn to understand that there is room enough for everyone. Thank you, Patricia, an adoptive mother of two adult daughters who lives adoption personally and professionally, for taking the time to have a conversation with me. It is always a delight and an honor to chat with you. Your wealth of experience and knowledge makes the adoption community an even better place because you're a part of it. We started and finished season two with adoptee allies and hope you enjoyed hearing from each of these members of the constellation. 
Season 3 begins soon. I hope you had an opportunity to listen to at least one other episode from this season and or Season 1. I trust that you will listen again and recommend this show to at least one other person during your day. I thank you for being here and look forward to bringing you more episodes of Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, the podcast about adoption from the perspective of the adoptee.